As Rick said, we are in our Behold Your God series, and we're going to talk today about the independence of God. Our main passage today is going to be in Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15, if you want to turn there. Um, Let me pray for our time together. God, um, I pray for clarity as I speak, uh, that we would be changed, our hearts would be changed by the preaching of your word, that we would be more in awe of who you are, that we would be more dependent on you, that we would draw close to you because of who you are, God. Amen. All right. Uh, Michelle and I uh, are finding out our DNA, uh, and, and many people have done this. We, you spit in a little tube, and you send it off, and then they tell you uh, how you're related, what your ancestry is. Uh, in the meantime, while we're waiting, I've been working on a family tree and having a lot of fun finding out who my relatives are. You can see my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. It even goes further back than that to the 1800s so far. And I'm surprised by just names, you know, names over generations. Uh, within our family, we have a lot of common names. There's a lot of Catherines. We knew there were some, but we didn't realize how many. And uh, there's a lot of Leroy's in our family. I'm, uh, my middle name is, is Leroy. And it's based after, after these two guys. So on the left is my grandpa, Roar. His name is Jack Leroy. And this is my grandpa Thetford on the right. Uh, his name is Orbria Leroy. And I love these pictures. And I found, I found these pictures recently. Uh, that is my grandpa Roar. He's, he's laughing. He's, he was always making jokes. He was, he was a funny guy. Now, this picture of my grandpa Thetford, man, he's looking pretty boss right there. I love this picture of him. He, he's young. He's like, he's a gangster right there. But... That's not how I knew him. When I knew him, he was all grandpa-y, right? And so both of them, middle name's Leroy. I'm Leroy as well. The interesting thing is that my grandpa Jack, he went by Lee. And my grandpa uh, Thetford, people couldn't say Thetford or I don't know. So he, he went by Ted. Had nothing to do with his, his names except for maybe his last name. And so it got me thinking about this idea of, of nicknames and where we get nicknames from, where we get names from. And so uh, the interesting thing is that we usually don't get to pick our own nicknames, right? Uh, there, we always have that one friend in high school who tries to, to get that really cool nickname to stick with himself, right? And then as soon as he does something stupid or says something stupid, that's the nickname that he gets stuck with. And that's usually the way nicknames are. I have a friend and he, um, he was being open, he was being transparent to a bunch of guys and he, he said that he, he actually likes uh, at night when, he's, when he cuddles with his wife to, to curl up and to have her kind of cuddle around him. And so unfortunately now he's always going to be known as Little Spoon, right? <laughs> we have some nicknames in our family. Of course, Hannah is Hannah Banana. And uh, I coached soccer for a long time. One of the things I would do to get the girls fired up is say, all right, let's pick nicknames. And they would pick their own, I guess in this case, they would, they would pick their own nicknames. And, and so Hannah would say, well, it's Banana. That's my, that's my nickname. But then all these other little, you know, girls playing soccer, they're like Terminator and Dominator and all these great nicknames. Uh, now, Catherine, when she was little, she was Buddy. 
but she hates that now because I call Logan that and so sometimes I'll still call her that and she, she doesn't like it. So then I call her Pumpkin Spice, which she doesn't like at all. <laughs> but she's, she is Kit Kat. Now Logan, Logan is the master of nicknames, right? He is Buddy, but he's also Bubba. He's also Buddha, Chumbawamba, the Logster, Logie Bear, and Obi Logan Obi. <laughs> now God, being self-existent, he, he picks his own name, and what he picks is very interesting. Uh, here is what he um, here is what is known as the Tetragrammaton, and it means four letters because there are four letters. It consists of these, these four Hebrew letters, and as we read it from right to left, you can see that there are eight, uh, Y-H-W-H, and there's some variation in kind of the older text with the, the J and the V there, but ancient Hebrew didn't have vowels in between. And so because of the lack of vowels, biblical uh, scholars debate how the tetragrammaton was pronounced. Okay? Again, we see it without any vowels, just the consonants. Um, and in fact, they're not even sure if it was a, um, a two-syllable word or a three-syllable word. And so you could put any number of vowels in there, and you can see this is where we get the word Yahweh, or the, the two-syllable version, and the word Jehovah, the three-syllable version. And so it was out of respect um, or awe for God or the fear that they would accidentally use God's name in vain, that the Jews didn't speak God's name. And so the pronunciation was lost over time through lack of use. So even though the Jewish people were first given the name of God, the true pronunciation of God's name has actually been lost because they wouldn't say it out loud. Instead, when they were reading Scripture, they would substitute um, for the Tetragrammaton, they would substitute the word uh, Adonai, which means Lord. Even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation in the Old Testament, again, it would use this word Lord or Kyrios. Some versions of the Bible translate the Tetragrammaton as, as Yahweh or Jehovah, as we have seen, or just Lord in all capital letters. And so, contrary to what Jehovah's Witnesses and even some Christians believe, Jehovah isn't this one divine name of God. And before I get too far, I, why am I telling you this? I'm not trying to focus on the names of God. We could do a whole sermon series on just all the different names of God. But what I want you to focus on, what I, want, what I think is important here, is that the name Jehovah or Yahweh is a description of the attribute of God's self-existence. God's name is a reflection of His being. This is what I mean. Yahweh is based on God's revelation to Moses at the burning bush. God is sending Moses to, to free his people from captivity in Egypt. Moses essentially asks God what his name is, and God replies. Oh, uh, God replies here in Exodus 3. He says, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so we see that Yahweh comes from this Hebrew verb, hayah, which is what you're supposed to do when you do karate, right? That's what you're supposed to say. Okay. <laughs> it means to be. They laughed in first service, okay? <laughs> 
It means I am who I am. Essentially, my character, my character and my existence are determined by myself alone. This is a declaration that God of Israel is the source of all being. He is the foundation of reality. He alone is the ground of all existence. He alone has being and existence inherent in Himself. Only God has life in and of Himself. Everything else, all of creation depends on the self-existence of the only one who can say, I am. All right, for note-takers, this is where we're going today. This is our map. This idea that Christians should understand the independence of God because it reveals four important biblical realities. These biblical realities are that God is self-existent, that God is unique, that God doesn't need anything, and that we need God. So what does that mean, this, this idea of biblical realities? It means that these statements are true and they're inherent to reality, all that's around us. They affect or they should affect how we relate to God, how we pray, how we worship, how we live our lives, okay? This is theology that's lived out practically. So what do we mean when we say the independence of God? God's independence or His self-existence is sometimes referred to as His aseity. This is a Latin word that means existence derived from itself, having no other source. So, what is the, the evidence for this, the evidence for God's existence? Paul says to the church in Rome, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. God exists by virtue of His very nature. He was never created and He never came into being. He always was. Moses declares, before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is constant. He cannot be improved upon. He's not becoming anything. There's no development in God. There's no progress. Absolute perfection cannot be improved upon. So, God's aseity is intrinsically connected to God's eternality and to His immutability. The, the fact that God is eternal and the God, that God is unchanging is connected with this idea of God's independence. So, think about this. If God didn't come into being, He can't go out of being because He is being, right? God is what is. He is total reality. There is no reality prior to God. There is no reality outside of God unless He wills it and makes it. There is no place, no reality to go to outside of His being. Before God creates, all that is, is God. So all of God's attributes, because they're integral to His nature, are independent as well. We think about God's love, God's justice. They would still be perfect and infinitely loving, just, merciful, omniscient. God would be all of those things without a single act of creation. It can be hard for us to fully grasp the, God, the idea of God's independence because our experience teaches us 
that everything comes from something else, right? Even if you ask a little kid, they get this, that, that, that things come from other things. This is why this cosmological argument for God is so powerful and simple. Here's what it says. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe has this, uh, began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. It's this idea that because the universe has a beginning, and we know that things that have beginnings have a causes, there's a cause behind the universe, and that cause, we would say, is God. Now, some will ask, well, well then where did God come from? But notice the first premise. It says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. There's a beginning to each of us, right? We have birth videos and baby photos, right? Like this beautiful baby right here. I want to say beautiful, but when I look at that picture, I just see like bald and white, right? Is it, it's so weird when you look at yourself as a baby. This is, if I shave, this is actually what I look like. So we have, we have baby photos, we have uh, videos, we have evidence of our birth. We have evidence of life that existed before us, evidence of our parents, of our grandparents. Uh, animals, plants, cars, planes, all constructed things have this beginning, right? This is the beginning of the church, right? It's actually that building over there. Anybody here when that was going on? Couple? Amazing. So you saw the beginning of this building. And there's a beginning to our universe as well. Our universe is expanding from this initial explosion out of nothing. But God has always existed. God has no beginning. God has no origin. This distinguishes God from everything else that is not God. He is the uncaused cause. This is how unique God is. Think about this. God's existence is so fundamentally different that it's not just that God does not need creation for anything, it's that God could not um, need the creation for anything. God is necessarily different in His order of being. His being is qualitatively unique. It's not that it's just He has always existed but that His existence is fundamentally different from ours and all of creation's existence. Everything, everything could not exist in a moment, but God necessarily lives forever. As human beings, we're both God's creation, but we're also made in the image of God. Life on this planet uh, like life on this planet, like all life on this planet, we are creatures. We are created by God. Yet man is made in God's image. And this is reflected in what we know uh, as the communicable attributes of God. These are traits that are inherent to God. Sorry, these are traits inherent to who God is. And these traits, all of these traits, communicable and incommunicable, are eternally existent in God. They're in His nature, and they exist at all times. So the independence, the thing we're talking about today, the self-existence of God is, is, is on the right side here, these incommunicable attributes. These include God's immutability, His eternality, His omnipresence. He is absolutely, literally unique. He is unequaled, incomparable, 
and he is a different order of being. When we talk about unique, right, that person is unique or that painting is really unique, we usually mean this, this last definition that, oh, that's really unusual, right? But God is this absolutely unique being, right? He's the only one. He's the sole example. There is no equal, nothing to compare him with. With regard to God's aseity, he's not just bigger and better. He's different than all that exists outside of himself. And all that exists outside of himself has been created by him. So everything is contingent, is dependent upon God. He says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know or who stretched the line of it? God not only measures things, but He creates the measurement in which we measure things. Let's not rush past this truth. Father, Son, and Spirit, together the triune God, God and God alone has always existed. There was never an instance when God didn't exist. But God also is and has been independent of everything else. Time, space, energy created by God. He made every single subatomic particle, every atom, every molecule, all minerals, vegetables, animals, you, me, every cell in our body, this world, the stars, planets, galaxies, our universe, they are all contingent. They are all dependent, reliant on God. Everything that is not God is dependent on God. All that is not God is secondary, is dependent. The entire universe, everything we know is utterly secondary. We tend to be uncomfortable with this idea, the idea that there's one who's not responsible to anyone else that is self-existent, that is self-sufficient, especially our scientists, our philosophers, their job, what they do, they are dedicated to accounting for things. And so they don't like anything that refuses to give an account of itself. It's one thing to admit that there's much that we don't know about this world and how it works. It's quite another to admit that there is something that we can never fully know that we don't even have the means of discovering it. This is the case with God. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? We are helpless in discerning who God is apart from His revelation. He reveals Himself directly either through Scripture or indirectly through his creation. And this, this amazes me. Think about this. We, let's not skip over this part. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're directing, sending, communicating, inspiring. Jesus becomes incarnate to reveal, instruct, and guide through prophets and apostles to record, and then the Holy Spirit residing within believers illuminates that revelation. That's the process. That's incredible so that God can be known, not exhaustively, but sufficiently known by us. Remember as well, God is uniquely and absolutely the standard of truth and goodness and beauty. There's no outside source. There's no outside principle or foundation. 
There's no textbook that he goes to to see what's right, what's law, what's fact. Here's the irony. We don't like that God is unaccountable to anyone. We try to hold God responsible for everything from death to suffering to evil, but God doesn't have to explain Himself to anyone, and yet we are the ones who don't want to be accountable to God. Philosopher and atheist Thomas Nagel says, I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear of religion myself. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I have hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that the cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism in our time. At least he's honest. When we understand the independence of God, we see that we were created as contingent, dependent beings, dependent on God for our existence. By ourselves, we possess nothing. We come from nothing. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Apart from God, we are nothing. It stings a bit. It's difficult to hear. Even for those of us who confess to believe in the reality revealed by God's Word, these are tough words. Our pride is wounded. How could you be so mean, Pastor Tim? But this is reality. I'll repeat it. By ourselves, we possess nothing. We come from nothing. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Apart from God, we are nothing. And so if we deny God, we destroy ourselves. Apart from God, we go back to the nothingness we come from. Now, God doesn't need anything. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, he defines God's independence this way. He says, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify Him and bring Him joy. It makes sense that God doesn't need any part of His creation in order to exist or for any other reason. Paul says to those in Athens, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He need anything, since He Himself to all people, life and breath and all things. God asked Job, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And so no one has contributed to God. No one has first given to him anything that wasn't first given by God. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Paul preaches this to the church in Rome. Unlike anything else, God is complete in Himself. He is perfect. He is without limit. There can be no need and nothing is necessary for God. If God could have a need, then He would be incomplete in His being. God doesn't need to create because of some unfulfilled need in Himself. God did not bring the universe into existence to make Himself happy or fulfilled or complete. 
He was not needy or wanting or lacking. God did not create because He was lonely. The Bible says that God is love, and like all of God's qualities, God's love emanates from the very nature of God. So, when Jesus prays, now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. And again, later in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which You have given me, for You have loved me before the foundation of the world. And so, God doesn't love uh, when He… God doesn't love just when He creates someone to love, but the Father, Son, and Spirit are love and have always loved. They've always communicated and they've always shared glory. In fact, that love, that that interpersonal fellowship, the sharing of glory in the triune God is perfect. It is better than any communion we as finite beings will ever have with God. The giving of glory by the persons of the Trinity to each other far exceeds the glory given by you or me or all of creation. God is not greater because we exist. He would not be less if we did not. He does not need our help. He does not need us. And this is a shock to our senses. We have such a high view of ourselves that this truth is hard to hear. It's offensive to us. Our existence is due to God's free will and to His good pleasure. It's not because we are worthy or are out of any need by God to feel good about himself. And so, if some strange comet flew across the sky and everyone looked at it, became blind, it wouldn't change that the sun would still rise and still shine during the day and the stars would still shine at night. In the same way, if all the world became atheists, it would not change God's existence. It would not change that truth in any way. Belief in Him adds nothing to His perfection, and doubt does nothing to diminish His splendor. Luke writes in in Acts, for in Him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also His children. We live and move and exist in God. For we have seen that God, that we need God for our very existence. I hope that as we grapple with and we try to understand this truth about the independence of God, that we're changed by it, that we have more gratitude and awe for who God is and what He's done and what He continues to do in our lives, what God continues to do in the very fabric of reality. This brings us to our final point, that we need God. Beyond our very existence I want to focus on our need for God in regard to meaning and in regard to salvation. Though under no obligation to His creation, He offers us both, and it's for our good. It's for our flourishing. So, we might be wondering, you might be thinking to yourself right now, why would a self-existent God bother with us? If God doesn't need us, then why are we important to Him? What is the meaning of our existence or even the existence of all of creation? So, I want to ask you guys, you, you can raise your hands, you can answer. Uh, anybody know what this is? Anybody seen one of this? These, used one of these? Who knows what this is? Go ahead and raise your hand. 
Can you see it? Yeah. Okay, good. Any other guesses? Yeah. It's a bolt and a nut. You're very, yeah, that is true. <laughs> Anybody who has no idea want to make it, you don't have to know. You can just take a guess at it. Anybody want to take a guess? No? All right, you're actually right, yeah. It's, uh, it's the, I don't know the technical name for it. I'm, I do some work on my car, but it, it's the thingy that, that presses the, the brake drums apart. So when I change the brake fluid, it, I can put it back on the, on the, on the thing, yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Now I got you guys warmed up. All right, raise your hand. You can guess. You don't have to know what this is. Anybody know what this is? Anybody want to take a guess? Tim. Okay, you guys are much sharper than first service. <laughs> Anybody else want, want to, what would you think this might be for? Any kids, kids out there want to, no, they're all in Sunday school. First service, I, I had, I had a, 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 a young gentleman say uh, that he thought it, it might be used for cutting pizza. All right? Could be. Uh, it, you're, actually, you're actually right, though. It's, and the technical, and then in first service, they, they told me it was a spline tool, right? So when, when it, we used to fix our own uh, screen doors, we put the screen out and we put the little grommet around the outside, and this is what we used to, to fix it. All right, last one. Anybody know what this is for? What's that? <laughs> S'mores? Good, I guess, yeah. No, really, does anybody know what this is? Because I have no idea. It's in my, it's in my garage, but I, I don't know what it does. All right. The, why, why am I showing you this? Okay. Um, let's say that we had no idea to find out. Let's say we, none of us knew what those things actually were. There's actually some uh, imprinted on some of these, the, the, the manufacturer who made the thing. We could go to the manufacturer and we could find out. We could ask them, hey, what is this thing? What is it used for? In the same way, we can indulge uh, ourselves in, 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 we can make up our own meanings in life. We can indulge ourselves in work or um, sports or family or entertainment, these kind of things. And these are good things, but ultimately, we have genuine significance um, from our creator, from the manufacturer right? And so those good things, uh, it might be like, like cutting pizza with a spline tool, right? We want to know what we were made for. And so we go to God. We go to the creator, not only the creator, but the creator and sustainer of all reality. He has given us meaning. He has given us purpose. The question is, do we realize it or are we still trying to figure it out ourselves? We are significant because the self-existent one has determined that we would be meaningful to him. There was no need or deficiency. No one was twisting his arm. There was no pressure. God doesn't need us, but God created us, and he seeks after us, and he loves us. God chose freely to create us, to adopt his children, to make us co-heirs with Christ. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he reminds them and us. He says, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, that's right. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory 
of God. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so ultimately we understand God's independence and our total dependence on Him. We realize why the greatest commandment is that we would love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. We were created by God to be dependent on Him. When we say essentially, not my God, it doesn't change the truth of His existence or His sovereignty. Our desire to be independent from God, our refusal to worship before His throne then is the greatest sin. We're actually trying to put ourselves on the very throne of God. We are declaring, I am. We try to make ourselves supreme. We try to dethrone the only one who has the right to sit on the throne. We are usurpers. This idea that we would seize, we would take this position by force without legal right. We have no authority. In our rebellion, we sit on a stolen throne that rightfully begins to God. Rabbi Lauren Jacobs is a Messianic Jew. He says, the sin of pride has affected all of humanity. So subtle and widespread is the sin of pride that hardly anyone is aware of it in themselves. Because humanity is born into rebellion, the sin of pride appears normal. Man is unaware that he is a rebel since this is all he knows. Because of our pride, we fail to glorify God. We believe that we are kings and queens of our little kingdoms. We need to be saved by the self-existent one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus, about the self-existent one, the one who doesn't need saving. In John 8, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is claiming to be the Yahweh, Jehovah, the self-existent one. I am. The Jews understood this. They took up stones to stone him for his blasphemy. Jesus is claiming to be the self-sufficient one. Jesus says that even as the Father has life in himself, so does he. John reveals that all things came into existence through Jesus, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Paul declares all things have been created by his will, through him and for him. He is prior to all things, and in him all things hold together. Because of this, Jesus is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. So Jesus calls us to something better, to deny ourselves and to follow Him. Paul proclaims, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We need God. He doesn't need us, yet He loves us, He rescues us, He died for us, He saves us. The answer, the solution, instead of being independent of God, is that we need to become God-centered. 
If God is the one who contains all, He gives all that is given. He can't receive anything from others that He hasn't first given to them Himself. And I love the way things connect as, as I study these truths about God. It reveals, you know, sometimes we believe things, we understand things, and we see it in God's Word, but then we see it, we kind of think through it, and it's revealed in a different way. This is why false gods need something from you. The pagan gods and goddesses are always in desperate need of human praise and sacrifice. Those that worship them live in fear that the so-called gods would manipulate them or lash out if not honored adequately. We see this, the God of Jehovah's Witnesses, the God of Mormonism, Allah, every other religion says that we have to do something for our salvation, but God doesn't need our good works to save us. Jesus has already done the perfect work on the cross, and so it's by faith that we are saved, but that means we need to admit that we are in need. We need to trust that the self-sufficient one is sufficient to save us. We are to give ourselves over to God. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. We have to surrender to God what is already his. He gave us life, and now we would hold, we would withhold it from him. We would withhold anything from him. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to be independent. We want to be in control. But when we act against reality, aren't we being delusional? Do we really believe we can do it better? You think you've got it under control? You think you don't need God? You're okay without Him? Admit that you desperately need Him. You were made to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Let me pray for us. Lord, we want to glorify you with all that we do and say and be with our lives. We love because you have loved us. We want to give because you have given so much to us. You rejoice in us when we reflect you, when we give back the good things that you give to us. We're doing that right now in worshiping, in studying, being under the preaching of your word, God. Let all that we do this week be for your glory and your honor and your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.